Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. If you were in a building that was on fire, and all the doors and windows were locked, the chances are that you would develop sufficient strength with which to break down the average door, because of your intense desire to free yourself. If you desire to acquire the art of successful negotiation, as you undoubtedly will when you understand its significance in relation to your achievement of your definite chief fame, you will do so, providing your desire is intense enough. Napoleon desired to become emperor of France and did rule. Lincoln desired to free the slaves, and he accomplished it. The French desired that they shall not pass, at the beginning of the World War, and they didn't pass. Edison desired to produce light with electricity, and he produced it, although he was many years in doing so. Roosevelt desired to unite the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, through the Panama Canal, and he did it. Demosthenes desired to become a great public speaker, and despite the handicap of serious impediment of speech, he transformed his desire into reality. Helen Keller desired to speak, and despite the fact that she was deaf, dumb and blind, she now speaks. John H. Patterson desired to dominate in the production of cash registers, and he did it. Marshall Field desired to be the leading merchant of his time, and he did. Shakespeare desired to become a great playwright, and, despite the fact that he was only a poor itinerant actor, he made his desire come true. Billy Sunday desired to quit playing baseball and become a master preacher, and he did. James J. Hill desired to become an empire builder, and, despite the fact that he was only a poor telegraph operator, he transformed that desire into reality. Don't say, it can't be done, or that you are different from these and thousands of others who have achieved noteworthy success in every worthy calling. If you are different, it is only in this respect, they desired the object of their achievement with more depth and intensity than you desire yours. Plant in your mind the seed of a desire that is constructive by making the following your creed and the foundation of your code of ethics. I wish to be of service to my fellow men as I journey through life. To do this I have adopted this creed as a guide to be followed in dealing with my fellow beings, to train myself so that never, under any circumstances, will I find fault with any person, no matter how much I may disagree with him or how inferior his work may be, as long as I know he is sincerely trying to do his best, to respect my country, my profession and myself, to be honest and fair with my fellow men, as I expect them to be honest and fair with me, to be a loyal citizen of my country to speak of it with praise, and act always as a worthy custodian of its good name, to be a person whose name carries weight wherever it goes, to base my expectations of reward on a solid foundation of service rendered, to be willing to pay the price of success in honest effort, to look upon my work as an opportunity to be seized with joy and made. IT is a peculiar trait of human nature, but it is true, that the most successful men will work harder for the sake of rendering useful service than they will for money alone, the most of, and not as a painful drudgery to be reluctantly endured. To remember that success lies within myself, in my own brain, to expect difficulties and to force my way through them, to avoid procrastination in all its forms, and never, under any circumstances, put off until tomorrow any duty that should be performed today. Finally, to take a good grip on the joys of life, so I may be courteous to men, faithful to friends, true to God, a fragrance in the path I tread, the energy which most people dissipate through lack of self-control would, if organized and used constructively, bring all the necessities and all the luxuries desired. The time which many people devote to gossiping about others would, if controlled and directed constructively, be sufficient to attain the object of their definite chief aim, if they had such an aim. All successful people grade high on self-control. All failures grade low, 
generally zero, on this important law of human conduct. Study the comparative analysis chart in the introductory lesson, and observe the self-controlled gratings of Jesse James and Napoleon. Study those around you and observe, with profit, that all the successful ones exercise self-control, while the failures permit their thoughts, words and needs to run wild. One very common and very destructive form of lack of self-control is the habit of talking too much. People of wisdom, who know what they want and are, bent on getting it, guard their conversation carefully. There can be no gain from a volume of uninvited, uncontrolled, loosely spoken words. It is nearly always more profitable to listen than it is to speak. A good listener may, once in a great while, hear something that will add to his stock of knowledge. It requires self-control to become a good listener, but the benefits to be gained are worth the effort. Taking the conversation away from another person is a common form of lack of self-control which is not only discourteous, but it deprives those who do it of many valuable opportunities to learn from others. After completing this lesson you should go back to the self-analysis chart, in the introductory lesson, and regrade yourself on the law of self-control. Perhaps you may wish to reduce your former grading somewhat. Self-control was one of the marked characteristics of all successful leaders whom I have analyzed in gathering material for this course. Luther Burbank said that, in his opinion, self-control was the most important of the 15 laws of success. During all his years of patient study and observation of the evolutionary processes of vegetable life he found it necessary to exercise the faculty of self-control, despite the fact that he was dealing with inanimate life. John Burroughs, the naturalist, said practically the same thing, that self-control stood near the head of the list, in importance, of the 15 laws of success. The man who exercises complete self-control cannot be permanently defeated, as Emerson has so well stated in his essay on compensation, for the reason that obstacles and opposition have a way of melting away when confronted by the determined mind that is guided to a definite end with complete self-control. Every wealthy man whom I have analyzed, referring to those who have become wealthy through their own efforts, showed such positive evidence that self-control had been one of his strong points that I reached the conclusion that no man can hope to accumulate great wealth and keep it without exercising this necessary quality. The saving of money requires the exercise of self-control of the highest order, as, I hope, has been made quite clear in the fourth lesson of this course. I am indebted to Edward W. Bach for the following rather colorful description of the extent to which he found it necessary to exercise self-control before he achieved success and was crowned with fame as one of the great journalists of America. Why I believe in poverty is the richest experience that can come to a boy I make my living trying to edit a ladies' home journal. And because the public has been most generous in its acceptance of that periodical, a share of that success has logically come to me. Hence a number of my very good readers cherish an opinion that often I have been tempted to correct, a temptation to which I now yield. My correspondents express the conviction variously, but this extract from a letter is a fair sample. It is all very easy for you to preach economy to, as when you do not know the necessity for it, to tell us how, as for example in my own case, we must live within my husband's income of $800 a year, when you have never known what it is to live on less than thousands. Has it occurred to you, born with the proverbial silver spoon in your mouth, that theoretical writing is pretty cold and futile compared to the actual handu mouth struggle that so many of us live, day by day and year in and year out, an experience that you know not of, an experience that you know not of, now, how far do the facts square with this statement? Whether or not I was born with the proverbial silver spoon in my mouth, I cannot say. It is true that I was born of well-to-do parents. But when I was six years old my father lost all his means, and faced life at 45, in a strange country, without even necessaries. There are men and their wives who know what that means, for a man to try to come back at 45, and in a strange country. I had the handicap of not knowing one word of the English language. I went to a public school and learned what I could, and sparse morsels they were. The boys were cruel, as boys are. The teachers were impatient, as tired teachers are. My father could not find his place in the world. My mother who had always had servants at her beck and call, faced the problems of housekeeping that she had never learned or been taught, and there was no money. So, after school hours, my brother and I went home, but not to play. After school hours meant for us, 
To help a mother who daily grew more frail under the burdens that she could not carry, not for days, but for years, we two boys got up in the gray cold winter dawn when the beds feel so warm to growing boys, and we sifted the coal ashes of the day before's fire for a stray lump or two of unburned coal, and with what we had or could find we made a fire and warmed up the room. Then we set the table for the scant breakfast, went to school, and directly after school we washed the dishes, swept and scrubbed the floors. Living in a three-family tenement, each third week meant that we scrubbed the entire three flights of stairs from the third story to the first, as well as the doorsteps and the sidewalk outside. The latter work was the hardest, for we did it on Saturdays, with the boys of the neighborhood looking on none too kindly, so we did it to the echo of the crack of the ball and bat on the adjoining lot. In the evening when the other boys could sit by the lamp or study their lessons, we two boys went out with the basket and picked up wood and coal in the adjoining lots, or went after the dozen or so pieces of coal left from the ton of coal put in that afternoon by one of the neighbors, with the spot hungrily fixed in mind by one of us during the day hoping that the man who carried in the coal might not be too careful in picking up the stray lumps. An experience that you know not of, don't I? At ten years of age I got my first job, washing the windows of a baker's shop at fifty cents a week. In a week or two I was allowed to sell bread and cakes behind the counter after school hours for a dollar a week, handing out freshly baked cakes and warm, delicious smelling bread, when scarcely a crumb had passed my mouth that day. Then on Saturday mornings I served a route for a weekly paper, and sold my remaining stock on the street. It meant from sixty to seventy cents for that day's work. I lived in Brooklyn, New York, and the chief means of transportation to Coney Island at that time was the horse car. Near where we lived the cars would stop to water the horses, the men would jump out and get a drink of water, but the women had no means of quenching their thirst. Seeing this lack I got a pail, filled it with water and a bit of ice, and, with a glass, jumped on each car on Saturday afternoon and all day Sunday, and sold my wares at a cent a glass. And when competition came, as it did very quickly when other boys saw that a Sunday's work meant two or three dollars, I squeezed a lemon or two in my pail, my liquid became lemonade and my price two cents a glass, and Sunday meant five dollars to me. Then, in turn, I became a reporter during the evenings, an office boy day times, and learned stenography at midnight. My correspondent says she supports her family of husband and child on $800 a year, and says I have never known what that means. I supported a family of three on $6.25 a week less than one half of her yearly income. When my brother and I, combined, brought in $800 a year we felt rich. I have for the first time gone into these details in print so that you may know, at first hand, that the editor of the Ladies Home Journal is not a theorist. When we write or print articles that seek to preach economy or that reflect a hand-to-hand -hand struggle on a small or an invisible income, there is not a single step, not an inch, on the road of direct poverty that I do not know of or have not experienced. And, having experienced every thought, every feeling and every hardship that come to those who travel that road, I say today that I rejoice with every boy who is going through the same experience, nor am I discounting or forgetting one single pang of the keen hardships that such a struggle means. I would not today exchange my years of the keenest hardship that a boy can know or pass through for any single experience that could have come to me. I know what it means to earn, not a dollar, but to earn two cents. I know the value of money as I could have learned it or known it in no other way. I could have been trained for my life work in no surer way. I could not have arrived at a truer understanding of what it means to face a day without a penny in hand, not a loaf of bread in the cupboard, not a piece of kindling wood for the fire, with nothing to eat, and then be a boy with the hunger of nine and ten, with a mother frail and discouraged. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. An experience that you know not of, don't I? And yet I rejoice in the experience, and I repeat, I envy every boy who is in that condition and going through it. But, and here is the pivot of my strong belief in poverty as an undisguised blessing to a boy, I believe in poverty as a condition to experience, to go through, and then to get out of, not as a condition to stay in. 
That's all very well, some will say, easy enough to say, but how can you get out of it? No one can definitely tell another that. No one told me. No two persons can find the same way out. Each must find his way for himself. That depends on the boy. I was determined to get out of poverty, because my mother was not born in it, could not stand it and did not belong in it. This gave me the first essential, a purpose. Then I backed up the purpose with effort and willingness to work and to work at anything that came my way, no matter what it was, so long as it meant the way out. I did not pick and choose, I took what came and did it in the best way I knew how. And when I didn't like what I was doing I still did it well while I was doing it, but I saw to it that I didn't do it any longer than I had to do it. I used every rung in the ladder as a rung to the one above. It meant effort, but out of the effort and the work came the experience, the upbuilding, the development, the capacity to understand and sympathize, the greatest heritage that can come to a boy, and nothing in the world can give that to a boy, so that it will burn into him, as will poverty. That is why I believe so strongly in poverty, the greatest blessing in the way of the deepest and fullest experience that can come to a boy. But, as I repeat, always as a condition to work out of, not to stay in. Before you can develop the habit of perfect self-control you must understand the real need for this quality. Also, you must understand the advantages which self-control provides those who have learned how to exercise it. By developing self-control you develop, also, other qualities that will add to your personal power. Among other laws which are available to the person who exercises self-control is the law of retaliation. You know what retaliate means. In the sense that we are using here it means to return like for like, and not merely to avenge or to seek revenge, as is commonly meant by the use of this word. If I do you an injury you retaliate at first opportunity. If I say unjust things about you, you will retaliate in kind, even in greater measure. On the other hand, if I do you a favor you will reciprocate even in greater measure if possible. Through the proper use of this law I can get you to do whatever I wish you to do. If I wish you to dislike me and to lend your influence toward damaging me, I can accomplish this result by inflicting upon you the sort of treatment that I want you to inflict upon me through retaliation. If I wish you respect, your friendship and your cooperation I can get these by extending to you my friendship and cooperation. On these statements I know that we are together. You can compare these statements with your own experience and you will see how beautifully they harmonize. How often have you heard the remark, what a wonderful personality that person has? How often have you met people whose personalities you coveted? The man who attracts you to him through his pleasing personality is merely making use of the law of harmonious attraction, or the law of retaliation, both of which, when analyzed, mean that like attracts like. If you will study, understand and make intelligent use of the law of retaliation you will be an efficient and successful salesman. When you have mastered this simple law and learned how to use it you will have learned all that can be learned about salesmanship. The first and probably the most important step to be taken in mastering this law is to cultivate complete self-control. You must learn to take all sorts of punishment and abuse without retaliating in kind. This self-control is a part of the price you must pay for mastery of the law of retaliation. When an angry person starts in to vilify and abuse you, justly or unjustly, just remember that if you retaliate in a like manner you are being drawn down to that person's mental level, therefore that person is dominating you. On the other hand, if you refuse to become angry, if you retain your self-composure and remain calm and serene you retain all your ordinary faculties through which to reason. You take the other fellow by surprise. You retaliate with a weapon with the use of which he is unfamiliar, consequently you easily dominate him. Like attracts like. There's no denying this. Literally speaking, every person with whom you come in contact is a mental looking glass in which you may see a perfect reflection of your own mental attitude. As an example of direct application of the law of retaliation, let us cite an experience that I recently had with my two small boys, Napoleon Jr. and James. IT is well worth remembering that the customer is the most important factor in any business. If you don't think so, try to get along without him for a while. We were on our way to the park to feed the birds and squirrels. Napoleon Jr. had bought a bag of peanuts and James had bought a box of Cracker Jack. James took a notion to sample the peanuts. Without asking permission he reached over and made a grab for the bag. He missed and Napoleon Jr. retaliated with his left fist which landed rather briskly on James' jaw. I said to James, now, see here, son, 
You didn't go about getting those peanuts in the right manner. Let me show you how to get them. It all happened so quickly that I hadn't the slightest idea when I spoke what I was going to suggest to James, but I sparred for time to analyze the occurrence and work out a better way, if possible, than that adopted by him. Then I thought of the experiments we had been making in connection with the law of retaliation, so I said to James, open your box of Cracker Jack and offer your little brother some and see what happens. After considerable coaxing I persuaded him to do this. Then the remarkable thing happened, a happening out of which I learned my greatest lesson in salesmanship. Before Napoleon would touch the Cracker Jack he insisted on pouring some of his peanuts into Lame's overcoat pocket. He retaliated in kind. Out of this simple experiment with two small boys I learned more about the art of managing them than I could have learned in any other manner. Incidentally, my boys are beginning to learn how to manipulate this law of retaliation which saves them many a physical combat. None of us have advanced far beyond Napoleon Jr. and James as far as the operation and influence of the law of retaliation is concerned. We are all just grown-up children and easily influenced through this principle. The habit of retaliating in kind is so universally practiced among us that we can properly call this habit the law of retaliation. If a person presents us with a gift we never feel satisfied until we have retaliated with something as good or better than that which we received. If a person speaks well of us we increase our admiration for that person, and we retaliate in return. Through the principle of retaliation we can actually convert our enemies into loyal friends. If you have an enemy whom you wish to convert into a friend you can prove the truth of this statement if you will forget that dangerous millstone hanging around your neck, which we call pride, stubbornness. Make a habit of speaking to this enemy with unusual cordiality. Go out of your way to favor him in every manner possible. He may seem immovable at first, but gradually he will give way to your influence and retaliate in kind. The hottest coals of fire ever heaped upon the head of one who has wronged you are the coals of human kindness. One morning in August, 1863, a young clergyman was called out of bed in a hotel at Lawrence, Kansas. The man who called him was one of Quantrell's guerrillas, and he wanted him to hurry downstairs and be shot. All over the border that morning people were being murdered. A band of raiders had ridden in early to perpetrate the Lawrence massacre. The guerrilla who called the clergyman was impatient. The latter, when fully awake, was horrified by what he saw going on through his window. As he came downstairs the guerrilla demanded his watch and money, and then wanted to know if he was an abolitionist. The clergyman was trembling, but he decided that if he was to die then and there it would not be with a lie on his lips. So he said that he was, and followed up the admission with a remark that it immediately turned the whole affair into another channel. He and the gorilla sat down on the porch, while people were being killed through the town, and had a long talk. It lasted until the raiders were ready to leave. When the clergyman's gorilla mounted to join his confederates he was strictly on the defensive. He handed back the New Englander's valuables, apologized for disturbing him and asked to be thought well of. That clergyman lived many years after the Lawrence massacre. What did he say to the gorilla? What was there in his personality that led the latter to sit down and talk? What did they talk about? Are you a Yankee abolitionist? The gorilla had asked. Yes, I am, was the reply, and you know very well that you ought to be ashamed of what you're doing this through the matter directly to a moral issue. It brought the gorilla up roundly. The clergyman was only a stripling beside the seasoned border ruffian, but he threw a burden of moral proof onto the raider, and in a moment the latter was trying to demonstrate that he might be a better fellow than circumstances would seem to indicate. His personal history at length. He explained matters from the time when he had been a tough little kid who wouldn't say his prayers, and became quite sentimental in recalling how one thing had led to another, and that to something worse, until, well, here he was, and a mighty bad business to be in, partner, his last request in writing away was, now, partner, don't think too hard of me, will you, the New England clergyman made use of the law of retaliation, whether he knew it at that time or not, imagine what would have happened had he come downstairs with a revolver in his hand and started to meet physical force with physical force, but he didn't do this, he mastered the gorilla because he fought him with a force that was unknown to the brigand, why is it that when once a man begins to make money the whole world seems to beat a pathway to his door, take any person that you know who enjoys financial success and he will tell you that he is being constantly sought, and that opportunities to make money are constantly being urged upon him. To him that hath shall be given, but to him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he bath this quotation from the Bible used to seem ridiculous to me, yet how true it is when reduced to its concrete meaning. Yes, 
to him that hath shall be given, if he hath failure, lack of self-confidence, hatred or lack of self-control, to him shall these qualities be given in still greater abundance, but, if he hath success, self-confidence, self-control, patience, persistence and determination, to him shall these qualities be increased, sometimes it may be necessary to meet force with force until we overpower our opponent or adversary, but while he is down is a splendid time to complete the retaliation by taking him by the hand and showing him a better way to settle disputes, like attracts like, Germany sought to bathe her sword in human blood, in a ruthless escapade of conquest, as a result she has drawn the retaliation and kind of most of the civilized world, it is for you to decide what you want your fellow men to do and it is for you to get them to do it through the law of retaliation, the divine economy is automatic and very simple, we receive only that which we give, how true it is that we receive only that which we give, it is not that which we wish for that comes back to us, but that which we give, I implore you to make use of this law, not alone for material gain, but, better still, for the attainment of happiness and goodwill toward men, this, after all, is the only real success for which to strive, summary, in this lesson we have learned a great principle, probably the most important major principle of psychology, we have learned that our thoughts and actions toward others resemble an electric magnet which attracts to us the same sort of thought and the same sort of action that we, ourselves, create, we have learned that like attracts like, whether in thought or in expression of thought through bodily, action, we have learned that the human mind responds, in kind, to whatever thought impressions it receives, we have learned that the human mind resembles Mother Earth and that it will reproduce a crop of muscular action which corresponds, in kind, to the sensory impressions planted in it, we have learned that kindness begets kindness and unkindness and injustice beget unkindness and injustice, we have learned that our actions toward others, whether of kindness or unkindness, justice or injustice, come back to us, even in a larger measure, we have learned that the human mind responds in kind, to all sensory impressions it receives, therefore we know what we must do to influence any desired action upon the part of another, we have learned that pride and stubbornness must be brushed away before we can make use of the law of retaliation in a constructive way, we have not learned what the law of retaliation is, but we have learned how it works and what it will do, therefore, it only remains for us to make intelligent use of this great principle, you are now ready to proceed with lesson 9, where you will find other laws which harmonize perfectly with those described in this lesson on self-control, it will require the strongest sort of self-control to enable the beginner to apply the major law of the next lesson, on the habit of doing more than paid for, but experience will show that the development of such control is more than justified by the results growing out of such discipline, if you are successful remember that somewhere, sometime, someone gave you a lift or an idea that started you in the right direction, remember, also, that you are indebted to life until you help some less fortunate person, just as you were helped. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor. Thank you.